Welcome back to the Leading People Podcast. I am so glad to be here for this episode because we are going to talk about what it means to be human and have human family members and life and some difficult moments with health and parents and friends and all the rest of that. So today's episode is going to be one that I think people are going to find really practical. As always, I am with my co-host here, Julie Chisholm. Good morning. And we are, wow, we are fully into season two, Arthur. So... I agree. Today is going to be a great session, and I can't wait to have this conversation. On this podcast today, we're going to do it a little different. We're going to have a couple people that we talk to because the question about being human, I mean, there's a truth here that none of us are going to get out of this thing called life alive. And so in that world, how do you do it as well as you possibly can? We are going to have some moments where we've got parents or friends or ourselves that are going to have to go to long, long-term care facilities or go to the hospital or get difficult diagnosis. And so we are gathered here with one of uh, my friends, a uh, church member here at St. Andrew, and someone who is led really well in the medical world. Anna Sin is here. She's a neurologist, but has also spent a lot of her last decade talking about how to make healthcare in general better. Welcome, Anna. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. I am honored for the invitation. So would you tell a little bit about what a neurologist does and when people come to you, how do you think about your job? So as a neurologist, I see everything within the nervous system. So what does that mean? That means brain-related, spinal cord-related peripheral nerve related. So it really encompasses all of the body. So to make it real, what sort of diseases am I dealing with? I'm dealing with Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, migraine headaches, uh, spinal cord disorders. So really a broad swath of medical problems. All of those sound pretty horrible. Those seem to me like the kinds of things that if you were to write a list of things that we humans would rather not have, you've got to diagnose and deliver some of that. Absolutely. Uh, As a neurologist, we deal with a lot of hard stuff. And, you know, it's what I do every day. So I forget sometimes, but I sometimes have to remind myself that the person coming in to see me for the first time, they're probably scared. Because they've been sent to you in most cases by their primary care physician or somebody else who has said, you need to go and see this specialist. Exactly. So just walking in my door sometimes is scary. I understand that. I sometimes forget that because that's what I do every day, you know, so it's good to be reminded every now and then. My only connection, I was a chaplain at Duke Hospital for a summer doing internship stuff. When they saw the word chaplain, immediately they thought they were going to die and that I was there to give them that kind of bad news, which wasn't the case. I just got called on all sorts of things. But that level of fear about what could be is real. What do you hope people do? Like, what attitude would you ask for people just in general? They're going to go to a doctor. They've got bad news or their parent or friend or whatever. They've come to you because they know something's not right and it could be bad. You know, you're a person of deep faith. You're also a doctor. How do you hope people think about that moment? I think one of the first things to request would be talk about your fear openly with the doctor that you're seeing. Because if the doctor can understand what your fear is, he or she may be able to better address that fear. Unfortunately, sometimes it's a confirmation of that fear, but it's not always a confirmation of it. It might be, oh, that's what they're afraid of. And so I need to address that head on instead of thinking through what I think I'm supposed to be addressing, which are not necessarily synonymous. And when you have to deliver 
a tough diagnosis to somebody. How do you do that? I mean, like part of it, right, I would imagine is an education process around helping people to understand what it is that you are diagnosing them because all of those things that you mentioned are relatively complicated diseases and sicknesses, illnesses. How do you go about doing that? And really, how does your faith enter into delivering that news? Well, I've been thinking this week, actually, that you want to talk about long-term planning and almost delayed gratification and things like that. There's nothing more than being a Christian to kind of think long-term, right? So part of how I deliver news, if it's not necessarily good, is I think in terms of short-term ramifications as well as long-term. So I don't know if that's kind of what you're asking me. No, exactly. I think that's I think that's actually really helpful. So you are sharing, hey, this is the diagnosis. Here's a little bit about what that means. And in the short term, what it could mean for you. And then in the long term, the types of things that we could be dealing with. I even like the framing of Christianity as kind of short-term difficulty with some long-term delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. Like heaven's mm -hmm. a really delayed gratification exactly. conversation. Right. I mean, these are intimately related to a diagnosis, say. Right, right. So sharing of the fear. The fear typically is a more of a long-term fear. You're afraid of what the outcome is going to be at the end. So if I'm giving a bad diagnosis, I try to segment it into short-term, mid-term, and long-term. Usually, if it's a bad diagnosis, you're dealing with a lot of short-term. So I try to give more detail about the short-term up front. But then if I understood the fear, then I can better address the long-term even as I'm discussing the short term. I don't know if that makes sense. So I give the minute details of this is what you need to do next. That's the short term. And then I give voice to this is the long term of what we're trying to impact by you doing the short term today. But I won't go into big details on the long term because usually the person is assimilating and they're trying to figure out what am I supposed to do next? How am I going to handle this? But then understanding what the long term goals for that patient is really key to have a good journey. You know, all journeys do not end well. We all know that. But the journey does matter and it does count whether it's a good outcome or a bad outcome. You've seen so many patients. I mean, I know that that is after 25 years. Have you had any like special moments that you can remember with a certain patient who maybe you prayed with in your office or who struck you as somebody who you know was full of faith in this moment. I'm interested if you have any of those that stick out in your mind. There's one that does stick out in my mind. We didn't get into the discussion of faith, but I'm pretty sure it was back there in the background, let's just say. So this was several years ago. I remember I was on call and I was called into the emergency room with a 50-something-year-old man who had a massive stroke. He wasn't that old, like I said, kind of early to mid-50s, and this was totally unexpected. And I just remember, this is what strikes me when I talk about the journey. You know, he didn't do well. He did very poorly. He, in fact, passed away within 24 hours of me meeting him. But I remember to this day, his daughter coming out to speak to me after he passed. And she was at that point in medical school herself. And she just came out and thanked me. 
And I remember that very profoundly because why would you thank the doctor that couldn't save your dad's life? She came out, thanked me, and just said, thank you for your compassion. Thank you for the way that you talked us through this process. I will always remember that and cherish that because you helped us through this really difficult period of our lives. So that's, you know, that's just a story I remember. And that's been probably about 20, 20 years ago that that happened. Well, and I really appreciate you being a part of this. That story is a perfect kind of encapsulation of what we're trying to do on this podcast today is because you've got to match up. I mean, not just the medical world needs to talk to itself better, but you can't just talk about the medical world without talking about where the people live once they have a stroke. They don't talk about the pastors that are going to be doing that process because you've got family members involved in this. You've got loved ones, spouses, parents, friends. It's an entire community that if we were to do this all better, you would have pastors, facilities of where people go after they have a stroke, hospitals, doctors, primary care physicians caring actually about the entirety of a person, which includes their loved ones and everyone else. I guess before we go, I want to ask you a question that we've asked every person who's been on here, which is, how do you want to be remembered? This is one of those pieces, and, I, and you kind of talk about it with that young woman coming in and saying, thank you for how you cared for my father. But at the end of our lives, we aren't going to be remembered just for the technical accomplishments or the business developments or the money we made or any of the rest of it. How do you want to be remembered? That's a tough one. <laughs> uh, I would probably say I would like to be remembered that I contributed something, something to maybe uh, developing a team. So if I think about this in terms of just professional uh, wording, I would love to be able to walk away from my career and say I helped to promote a team that could really care for the entire patient because part of my wish is to really reach as many people as I can, which is why I've been kind of going down this road of team building rather than strictly on the one-on-one -on -one relationships that I have when I see each individual patient. I feel like I can reach more if I can build that team. Well, there's transformation there. And I don't think you get to a level of transformation and commitment to betterment without a 25-year career seeing so many patients and making a difference in so many lives. So I think it's an extraordinary thing to want to be known for. And I, I have no doubt that you will get there in your journey um, forward. So thank you so much for the conversation today. I believe that people will listen to this and get a, a whole lot out of the opportunity to listen to your perspective and may find themselves in your office one day. So thanks, Anna. Thank you. Our second conversation today is with Christy Byerly, a church member who specializes in walking with families through loved ones when they have to transition, not just medically, but personally. A lot of medical difficulties or aging, which does literally happen to each of us, impacts the whole family, the housing, the community, and everything. Christy, I'm so glad you're here to talk about how you think about navigating families through this. Well, thank you both for having me. I'm excited to be here and have these conversations. Christy is a clinical liaison for senior living specialists and has 20 years in this industry, which is quite a long time to be dealing with, you know, maybe a, a topic that's relatively difficult that you wake up to every day. 
having to deal with people who are sick and guiding families through this process. And so, Christy, I'm just so glad to share with people that there are gifts like you Mm. who enter into people's lives when they're going through (laughs) these difficult times. So tell us about your story, about your career, and what a day is maybe like for Christy (laughs) in in this world. Well, thank you, Julie. So when I was seven, my brother was five, and he got diagnosed with bone cancer. And he's fine now. He's great. He's 40 and has a son, but we went through that as a family. Bone cancer in his left arm, and then it spread to his lungs. And he was treated at Children's Medical Center of Dallas. And I knew immediately in my future, I wanted to help families, not just the patient that was going through a horrible medical time because I saw how much attention and love my brother got. But I felt like there were things that I could have and my sister could have benefited from some resources or some things. And so that's why I went into social work is to help all members of a family when there is a medical crisis. So I started at a hospital down in South Dallas after graduate school and worked there, worked with the seniors, loved it. Then I got into some marketing and then I've kind of been doing lots of marketing, social work, worked a lot of hospitals, rehabs around here. And then a little over eight years ago, I started working for senior living specialists. And it's a great service. It's a free service. And what we do is we help people find the next best senior living option or resources. So independent living, assisted living, memory care, residential care homes, elder care attorneys, any resources that anyone needs, they can call us. Somebody has a fall and breaks their hip and they're like, oh, I really need to know what good rehab to go to. Give me a call. I can help you um, get through the next step of whatever you need to get through. I think what's important, so as a pastor, I'm one of the people who's on the tangential side of this conversation as well, because most families go through most of their time not navigating this, and then something happens, and it's amazing how quickly this happens for people. It's like your brother's own cancer diagnosis, or someone has a stroke or something, and so you go from 100 miles an hour, making plans, assuming you're going to be able to fulfill those plans, and then life kind of gets upended on a dime, and so- you know, as a pastor, I'm really glad to know like that there are people to connect with and to help with such things. But it's also really helpful because I imagine this is going to be one of those conversations, Christy, that people are going to text to someone else and say, hey, I know you just had this experience. When you are in a moment where your life gets upended, your parents have a fall, you've got to need a rehab or whatever it is that's going on. What's your message to people when they first call you or when you get a first message of a friend who has it? What do you tell them? I listen to them first and see what is going on and try to put myself in their shoes and see what they need. Probably similar to what you do as a pastor, just listen and then figure out which direction you're going to go. Sometimes it's just listening and talking and going, okay, well, this is what Medicare pays for and this is what it doesn't or these are the different levels of rehab. And sometimes it's more. Sometimes it's, hey, I need a place to go right now and then I'll help someone find that place. It's really just learning about that person and their situation to know which way the conversation is going to go and then hopefully be able to walk with them through that crisis or path that they're taking. How does your faith play into that moment? Because I would imagine that you, first of all, have to prepare your own heart for Mm -hmm. those conversations to walk into that moment. 
And then obviously, you know, there's a tremendous opportunity for ministry and just for setting the tone mm-hmm. for that moment within that family's life. It is. And also, like, I'm a CCM, a congregational care minister here. So that has been really a great part of what I do because it's like what I do on a daily basis. It's just helping church members. I love that. I love that people will call me and ask for advice or whatever. But yes, it is emotionally draining. It is hard. It is tough conversations every single day. And like yesterday, when your daughter was babysitting, yes. I'm having a hospice conversation with a lady about her mom. And I've got three kids running around. And it's not easy to work at home. I have to really put my faith in God and that I can do this as a professional and not try to take it all home with me because it would be very depressing. You're going through a little bit of this in your own life right yes. now where your own grandparents are, you know, at a point where they need to make the same decision. And here you are like an expert at this. <laughs> and yet in your own family, this is going on. What is that like? I've had to use my boss, uh, his name's Paul Markowitz, to talk a lot with my mom because it's totally easier to hear it from somebody else than your own family. It doesn't matter what it is, right? Like, even if you're telling your daughter something, she's going to take it better from a friend. When people are in the hospital and are like, Mom, we've got to move you to assisted living, let's get the doctors and the therapists to tell your mom that, not coming from the family. So I had my mom meet with Paul and my dad, and they were able to talk about you know, all the positives and minuses. And we ended up getting the move to assisted living. And it's not been easy. And it's really opened my eyes that you still have to be there more than you want to be, especially since COVID, like the staffing ratios, the morale of people, the caregivers, it's just gone down everywhere. And it's awful. And it breaks my heart for all these seniors and their families who are going through any kind of hospitalization or rehab stay. It's, it's really changed a lot. The number one kind of comment I'd be curious about your reaction to that we have on staff is that at a hospital, you've got to be your own advocate and that you can't actually trust the system and the institution to actually manage all that for you. Mm -hmm. Do you find that to be consistent everywhere? Absolutely. I was just on a phone call as I was walking in telling um, a son that, yes, this is a great place for your mom to go. But you have to be her advocate. You have to be there. You know, they're meeting at 1.30 today, and I need you to be there and tell that nurse who's assessing your mom exactly what you just told me. And then when she gets there, I want you to have that same conversation with that nurse. And if you can, you know, somebody be up there every single day. It doesn't have to be all day, but they don't have a voice all the time, and they're not listened to. You can't outsource being their kid or being their friend or being the person who's there with them. Right. I really fully believe that as people in the helping profession, like if I could say something for, you know, all the families that are out there, particularly on that point, you've got to be able to be present with your parents, with the system, because even when staffing ratios were better, you still had to be an advocate because they're going to transition out, right? So that nurse or whoever it is, they're going to come in and they've got, say, a 12-hour shift. Or if you're at a, a different facility, they might have an eight-hour shifts or whatever that time frame is, they're going to transition, right? There's going to be someone new eight hours later. And so none of these places are replacements 
for family to be involved and making decisions and being a part of that process. And I think there are a lot of people who go, hey, what's the silver bullet? Who can I hire just to handle this whole process so I don't have to worry about it? And I just can't imagine you know of any silver bullets out there like that. Not really. If somebody is out of state and not able to be up at the hospital at all, there are some like care managers out there that can do that, but it's not a replacement for a family member or even a friend. I mean, a family member's better as much as possible, but that doesn't always happen, unfortunately. One of the conversations I often have is with people who are, say, in their 40s or 50s and their parents get to 70 to 90, there's a huge decline. Like you can see in 70-year-olds to 90-year-olds, somewhere in there, there's going to be a significant decline in capability, et cetera. You have a lot of families who are debating whether or not their parents, grandparents, et cetera, ought to go to assisted living. Do you have any rules of thumb for how they ought to think about that and kind of categories that they need to think about to have clarity? Like Julie said earlier, everyone's confused. And when it's about your own personal family, it's very hard to get any kind of clarity. Do you have any kind of general rules of thumb that you think are helpful for people when they're having those conversations as a family? I do. I think it's important to, especially if you have more than one child or more than one sibling, to all sit down and have a family conversation with your parents and learn what their wishes are. Some people might want to be a full code, which means if there was an emergency, you would have CPR, chest compressions, and there are risks with that, such as broken lungs. Or you might want to be a do not resuscitate, which is a DNR which means if I'm going to pass, I want to pass in peace. And there's other parts to that too. But I think it's good to know what your parents' wishes are. And it's also good to have the talk if one parent's not there, what your other parent wants, because their wishes can definitely change as they get older or more diagnoses. So it's good to continue to have those conversations. The first conversation is probably the hardest because who wants to talk about right. what's going to happen? But I think once you open that door, it becomes easier to have those following conversations. And so I think those conversations about timing and process, I think every family ought to have a discussion also about finances. I know. Absolutely. Huge part of it. Huge part of it because these things are not cheap. No, they're not. And so if you can have a discussion about what you want to spend money on, my mom told me once, by the way, that she wants me to pay someone else to change her diaper so that I get the best parts of her (laughs) so that when she has to go into diapers, that I'm not the one changing her diaper, which let's just be very clear. I don't want to change my mother's (laughs) diapers. So this all works for everybody. You got a good one. She knows what to say. Some people are like, no, I don't want anyone else doing it. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't want your kids changing your diaper, right? Right. Absolutely. Let's say your mom's in an assisted living or wherever. You want to have conversations with your mom. You don't want to be changing her diaper. You want to have that quality of life that you've always had with your mom, the conversations, not the custodial care. That's why she is somewhere that they can handle that. But it's a hard transition from going to caring for your mom to placing her somewhere. As we transition to kind of ending this podcast, Arthur always asks the same two questions, and I'm excited to hear your answer. So I'll let him start. We asked two basic questions, one of which is, what advice do you give leaders like me or anyone else who's leading a large organization and have a lot of ears to it or whatever in my role? How do you imagine leadership or advice do you have for people who are leading and still have human elements like possible, you know, parents or whatever it is going on in their lives? What advice do you give? I think um, it's a social work value is what I would say. It's trying to empathize. 
And, you know, when you're meeting with somebody, listen, like we talked about earlier, but try to get your mindset of where they're at and what's important. Like somebody that's having a stroke, you know, they might be talking to you about their mom and their stroke, but also they're going through something else. They just lost their job or their wife just lost their job. I think listen to your people, your congregation, and try to see where they're at and what is important to them. And then the final question is, how do you want to be remembered? Hmm. This is one of those key pieces because you've seen a lot of people in their final stages. Oh, yeah. And mostly they don't talk about career or job or success or any of the rest of that. It's about values. It's about family. It's about other things like that. So how do you want to be remembered after having seen so many people get to that point in their life? I want to be remembered um, as somebody when, like Julie, like when there was a bad time that she saw me walk in that hospital and hopefully I made a difference. And if there's a bad time, I hope that I am someone that they see as a positive while they're going through that bad time. And of course, you know, that I'm a hard worker and do everything that I can for my kids and just my faith. Well, being a model of strength is one of the things that has really come through for me in this podcast watching you. And I think that there will be people who will realize that they might need a model of strength in the midst of their difficult time with their family. So I think you've given a ton of really good advice. And I know that this podcast is going to be used in many different ways. So thanks so much, Christy, for being here. So glad to have you. Just to recap a little bit, because I think the, the key points of this are really important. Prepare. Have conversations with your family members. Uh, have conversations about what kind of care they want to have, about who, how they want to be remembered, how you actually can serve them, whether it's finances, whether it's diapers, whatever it is, actually have the hard conversations ahead of time. And the second piece, when you're in those hard moments, look for people who can come alongside you. You're not alone. There's not a piece of these moments where you are isolated or alone because one, God is there. The Holy Spirit is present. So pay attention to how God has prepared that moment for you. And then the final piece is in the end, everything's going to be okay. And when you see these moments in the hospital, you see these moments approaching death with faith in God, with faith that this is actually not the end, that God can do something in these moments you actually can have peace and joy and hope. And these don't have to be scary places, but rather places of grief, yeah, but also hope and peace and comfort where, like you say, Christy, when you're in those moments, there are people who are going to walk through the door and there are going to be good moments. And in the end, we believe that even death is not the end of things. So thanks, Christy, for being a part of this. Thank you for your ministry here at St. Andrew and in your day-to-day job. It's our privilege to be able to walk through people. So one final note, get to a church before something bad happens. (laughs) Absolutely. And we appreciate you coming in. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 